0: The masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something there beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close in view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Doctor Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without you?
1: Fireside Chatters, today we're going deep into the broad and sweeping subject matter that falls under the umbrella term of Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism weaves itself throughout many areas of interest for conspiracy enthusiasts, from the use of ritual magic and its influence on secret societies, to the idea of nefarious reptilian overlord entities in the very process of awakening itself. It also goes without saying that the various orders and groups we consider under the term often share the commonality of being a thorn in the side of authority, orthodoxy, and the controllers of their day. Folks, it seems that even though Gnostic ideas ooze out of nearly every conspiratorial orifice, sometimes we have a tendency to play fast and loose with buzzwords we really haven't taken the time to dig deeper into. So that's what today's about, and if these are, in fact, ideas that ruffled the feathers of the power pyramid of the past, it would be quite a disservice to only know the cliff notes. So pack your glass and park your ass because today we got the true pope of Gnostic podcasting, Miguel Connor, here to show us the light. Miguel has been the host and producer of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio for several years, interviewing the leading scholars, writers, and researchers in this very niche. And he's extracted much of his guests' incredible insights and compiled two hefty texts entitled Voices of Gnosticism and the recently released Other Voices of Gnosticism. A man, my favorite wizard, is called a walking, talking library of Alexandria. Miguel, my man, welcome to the higher side.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, and a wonderful introduction. The Pope of Gnosticism, (laughs) blessed are thee, then, or cursed are thee, after this interview.
1: (laughs) Right on, man, amen. And uh, it is a real pleasure to have you here. You're, You're clearly knowledgeable about this stuff, and while I typically try to avoid religion and theology as much as I can. I sort of make an exception for the Gnosticism topic. A lot of the time, it can feel a little Christian-y, but sometimes it can feel pretty punk rock and rebellious and damn near sci-fi. But it is a big umbrella, and it can be a loaded term. Give us a better idea of what Gnosticism means beyond the 101 understanding, because there really was no group of people that called themselves Gnostics, right?
2: No, not really. Not in their text. The church fathers do talk about these groups that call themselves Gnostics. But again, as far as their text, they never call themselves Gnostics and they never use the term Gnosticism. That was invented, I think, in the 17th century by uh, conservative Christians, more as a derogatory term. But having said that, we have to understand that terms like Hinduism and Buddhism were created by Western scholars to create, again, as you said, sort of an umbrella over these foreign religions. Hmm. So as far as we know, that's happened. So do you want me to tell you what Gnosticism is as far as I can tell? Absolutely. Okay, well, let's do it. Oh, and I should mention that there is a bit of a synchronicity. Today is the anniversary of the release of the Matrix. So I (laughs) think... It's a perfect. (laughs) It's a the stars are aligned, and uh, for your listeners, I know it makes other people have heard me in the podcast, and they're probably getting tired. But I always tell people, look, if you want to know about Gnosticism, a good primer is go watch The Matrix, go watch The Truman Show, Dark City, Snowpiercer, and even the Lego Movie. You'll get a good vibe of what Gnosticism is. (laughs) But as far as people know, or the you might say the talking points, Gnosticism was this ancient heresy that broke out from christianity in the second century and i would say that the latest scholarship would say no that's not that's a simplified way and pigeonholing some people you didn't like and people you had to destroy so as far as the um I'll start with the origins of Gnosticism. And that, uh, again, there's great debate with scholars. I think the mainstream scholars still think that the Gnostics came from Christianity in the second century. As I mentioned, they're kind of keeping the same talking points as the church fathers. Other scholars have posited that they are much older, that they might have been breakaway Jews who just got tired of the temple culture, the Roman Empire, and so forth, and just sort of went on their own into far-off places to study mysticism and get in contact with higher powers. Hmm. Some say that they're even older, that they come from a stream of Zoroastrianism, Egyptian lore, and so forth. They might have melted together in places like Alexandria. I would say that, and I would agree, and I'll probably mention her more than once, but the new book by April DeConic, The Gnostic New Age, really makes a good case that Gnosticism is much older because it, it was never really a religion. It's a, You might say it's a metaphysical orientation. Mm-hmm. It's something that's always been in the air, and we can talk about some of the strains of how it all joined up, although it did culminate probably in the first, second century A.D. But I like to talk about the four, you might say, hallmarks of Gnosticism in this really I think, defines Gnosticism well. And then there's a few other things we can talk about. But the first hallmark is that basically we live in a simulated reality. uh, Bad software, as author Sam Chris called it. And I think, as you often call it in your show, the prison planet. (laughs) Although some Gnostics were a little bit more positive than that. But at the end of the day, all Gnostics agree this is not our home. We do live in an illusion. Maybe the bars are gold. Maybe it's some sort of a surreal nightmare. It comes to it that we don't belong here and we are trapped here by these stellar wardens or cosmic ranchers or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and these entities, as many people know, were called the Archons, which is Greek for rulers. And they were headed by the main Archon, who is called the Demiurge. And a lot of people make the mistake because they think Demiurge is Greek for half maker, but it's actually Greek for public worker. And again, we can touch upon the demiurge if you want, but we were trapped in here and basically kept asleep. And why were we kept asleep? Because we housed something called a divine spark, as the Gnostics called it. It was sort of, a, it was a shard of the infinite that we shared with an alien god that was beyond all the stars. All it was beyond reality. And this alien god had somehow through some cosmic tragedy or some sort of self-awareness or some breakdown, had fallen apart or part of his shards had come down here and become trapped in the chaos. And the Demiurge and the Archons had basically feed off of this and keep basically the universe fueled. So that's the second hallmark, is that we actually, again, are really part of this alien god or this supreme intelligence far away from the material domains. The third one is that we can awaken to our supernal origin, who we really are because we don't belong in this world. The divine spark can ignite. And this is usually through the teachings of what they called an apostle of light or a Gnostic illuminator. In the matrix, again, we can talk about Neo is the sleeping person. And he's, again, trapped in this world in some sort of existentialist angst he's alienated and you have morpheus who serves a part of the gnostic illuminator and the gnostic illuminator basically sort of comes with either teachings or some sort of other stimulation sometimes it could be a spirit or a god that comes down and awakens us but the gnostics held many different illuminators in their different sects. for example jesus was one zoroaster mary magdalene They had a Luciferian goddess called Sophia. And even the Manichaeans, which was a missionary Gnostic sect, placed Buddha as that level, as an awakener. And this awakener could wake us up. Now, what happens when we wake up or take the red pill, Hmm. as is the trope? Well, the Gnostics contended that then would come, this was part of the Gnosis or divine knowledge, that as we waken up, we can start taking astral flights beyond the world, and bypassing the heavenly realms ruled by the archons and start communing and communicating with this alien god and the forces behind it. And through our awakening, we would start to become divine and awakening. And eventually, we would leave to the stars and join. Of course, the Gnostics weren't just sort of these, you might say, aloof mystics, as some scholars have called them. They were sort of Christian bodhisattvas they felt that if they awakened they needed to awaken others through these rituals through these writings and so forth I think the Gospel of Philip one of the Gnostic writings says you saw Christ you became Christ we were meant to resurrect or awaken or become Buddhas while we were in the flesh through this process of Gnosis so in a nutshell those are the four hallmarks of Gnosticism and that is basically what Gnosticism is
1: Right on. I think that's a, a great summary and I was curious because it is such a wide umbrella what the commonalities would be, what the connective tissue would be, and I think that's uh four great bullet points that probably unite all these different sects and different groups that we consider under the umbrella of Gnosticism.
2: Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. That's why it's so hard because the Gnostics were very, a, they were very, you might say, anarchists. They believed they, they splintered off into different groups who did their own thing, and they were spread out towards the Roman Empire. Then they evolved into an influence, for example, the Sufis, forms of Kabbalah, the Cathars, and a whole bunch of other groups. But you can always find those four hallmarks within them if you really look. And even in their rituals, for example, I talked about these rituals, these ecstatic rituals, the scholars have been scratching their head. Well, you had these Gnostics in Egypt who were practicing sex magic. You had these Gnostics in Rome who were doing, you know, who are doing the Eucharist at churches. You had some who were dancing, some who were doing mystery religion acts and so forth. So what's the, what happens? Well, The Gnostics always adopted, you might say, the cultural context of what was around them. What they Mm. saw, if they saw something, they were going to use it, kind of like chaos magicians. (laughs) They were the first chaos magicians. But the point is, what they were looking for was that experience, that experience of that astral flight to leave this world of the Archons and make contact with the alien god. And whatever they could use around them and the kitchen sink, they were going to use it. If it didn't work, well, they try something else or find another group or move around. So that's why it's or sometimes it's confusing to peg them down. Like I said, it's more of a metaphysical orientation, and they were never really an actual religion. They broke off in lodges and so forth. They kind of were chameleons who adopted, again, the cultures around them, and they're always pretty much under the radar.
1: Right on. Yeah, that is a great term, metaphysical orientation. I like that. And... Now, you mentioned the Demiurge, and as you know, Gnosticism comes up in conspiracy circles largely because the term Archon seems to be the nuanced hipster term for reptilian, thanks to guys like David (laughs) Icke. I mean, how fair of a representation is that?
2: I would say it's probably not fair at all, although, I I mean, I have nothing against the otherness, finding out that we have shadow enemies, but of course I'm never going to peg them down as this or that. That's not where I am right now, or I I think we should be. But uh, I think the issue is what made the Gnostics so radical is that you have to remember that in ancient times, everything was connected to the gods. I mean, you had the great chain of being or the astral bureaucracy of Confucius and so forth, and you had the gods sort of streaming down, and the kings and the prophets were all earthly representatives. And this was with the Greeks, the Romans, the Zoroastrians. And in fact, you could make a case that it still goes on today because everybody, you know, politicians think God put them there and mullahs and so forth. Mm And the Gnostics, when they came out, they came out and said, whoa, first time in history. They said, look, the gods are crazy, barring from the movie. The gods are insane. They're deficient. So therefore, everything that flows for them, including into our earthly representatives, is a sham it's deficient it's it's basically twisted and that was extremely radical that some mortals 2000 years ago would take a stand against the supreme gods of this universe and the demiurge which is interesting is the demiurge was a very holy figure if you read Plato's Timaeus the demiurge is sort of the guy that we have the one the you know, the ultimate source which the gnostics borrow from the, the demiurge sort of ordered the universe and made sure that it ran well, like a clock, something like that. And of course, and that was even believed by, you know, ancient Jews, by the Romans, by the Neoplatonists. In fact, the church father, Justin Martyr, called Jesus the Demiurge of Jehovah because he was the order, the logos, the reason of the divine. The Gnostics came and said, no, this guy, this Demiurge who sort of, you know, the big architect. You might say of the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. He's insane. He's demented. He's demonic. And then they said, well, what about those who work under him? And they called him Archons. Remember, or you have to know that the Archons was Greek again, Greeks for ruler. And this was sort of a title. It's like calling somebody today a judge or a president. It was an honorific title in those times. And the Gnostics sort of twisted that around and made the Archons part of his demonic contingency if you want to call it that they're usually they're not i think in one instance in one of the texts an archon is depicted as reptilian but for the most part there were these hermaphrodite beings pretty much omnipotent who were who did have you know bestial faces like lions and so forth but it was varied and of course this is more symbolical than anything hermaphrodite in platonic times was just a very uh, a being that was really very powerful and you know the the beast faces represented their different what they were in charge and what their personalities were but as far as you know they were basically spiritual spiritual beings and they had two aspects one is they they ran things they liked things as a bureaucracy But they weren't very efficient about it. They were sort of, think of the movie Brazil or uh, Time Bandits, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, where they ran the universe in sort of this painful, badly run bureaucracy. As above, so below. I think we can all relate. But the whole mission was to keep us trapped and asleep. And the other thing is they had an appetite for rape they liked raping anything that was holy, anything that was beautiful, anything that could stir. And you could say, well, rape is really a metaphor for just, you know, screwing our minds and keeping us beaten down and so forth. So this was the aspects of the the Demiurge. And another thing too is the Demiurge, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, was associated with the God of the Old Testament. They thought, The God of the Old Testament was pretty much represented the insanity of this world and everything wrong with it, that this God, Jehovah, was pretty much, well, I keep saying it, he was out of his mind. He was an ignorant being. He was a being that when he came about, he said, there is no God but me, which was as many have called the great sin of the Demiurge when he thinks he rules the universe and there is nothing else. And this God. This Demiurge, of course, he associated with other beings too, and he changes throughout the histories. How did the Demiurge come about? Well, in some of the classic Gnostic texts, what happens is that you have the mind of the alien god is usually depicted as having characteristics, and they're personalized into these entities called the aeons. These are part of the the mind of god to the Gnostics. The ultimate source was just this well-running, imaginative, empathic mind full of information. And at one point, as this God is learning to become self-aware, and these characteristics come about, which he called aeons, and they had different things like love and honor and so forth. As he's spreading out, there is one aeon that's called Sophia. And they took this from the Old Testament because it always talks about this wisdom figure that is there with God, that is there at the beginning of the time who it's called wisdom in a lot of the texts, like the wisdom literature and so forth. And this being Sophia became so curious about the whole, how the whole mechanism worked, or how the ancient mind was, that she basically rebelled. And she's often called very much a Luciferian figure, probably even before the myth of Lucifer, because she rebels and she ends up falling out from this, Again, supreme mind from the matrix of the supreme mind and is thrown down into the chaos. And as she falls down, she goes through this passion where she begins to experience all the emotions that can be experienced, fear, despair, sadness, and she becomes basically pregnant by her own emotions. And in her pregnancy, she gives birth to the Supreme God, to the Demiurge, to Jehovah, who has no idea that he's been given birth, but has this power and this decides he's going to create the universe. So in the end, I I mean, the Demiurge is a classic tale about the ego and what the ego does and what uh, the egoic rulers of this world do and how they just basically make a mess of things.
1: Right on. Now, You also wrote an article titled The Five Most Dangerous Archons in the Gnostic uh, (laughs) Gospels, where you break down some of the other archonic characters. I think people have probably heard a a decent amount about the Demiurge, but I don't think many listeners have gone much deeper than that. What can you tell us about other archons and their potential influence?
2: Well, the archons, again, had the, the function of running the universe, The Gnostics, like many of the ancients, thought that the greatest thing that kept us down was the powers of fate, the power of the stars. So the Archons were in charge of all the different stars and in different systems, the Archons change and you can associate them with other gods and so forth. And the Archons, of course, had other they had other functions in one book. We have basically one bloody archon for every part of our body because they thought the human body had to be created in some factory and the archons were just building us or at least they were in charge of them. So there there could be thousands of archons for different functions and, of course, the roles would change and so forth. So, uh, yeah, sometimes I like to play around because there is one archon which made me laugh in the Secret Book of John. And this is the Archon of Desire, and her name is Yoko. So that made me laugh how they came up with that 2,000 years ago. And and then there's other stories. I mean, the Gnostics, when they were writing, that's why Carl Jung called them the first depth psychologists. (laughs) It's almost like they were taking a journey inside their own minds. The mind of the alien god was the own human mind. And they felt that they could travel back and find out this trauma Through their scriptures, it's almost like a form of self-therapy. I mean, Jesus doesn't even seem like a character. It's like they're writing uh, fan fiction. But again, as many people know, sometimes writing is a great form of therapy. You do unlock doors. Your mind does expand. You do seem to take some amazing journeys. And they were just pumping out Gospels and doing the rituals and discovering different things and tweaking the stories and changing the archons and changing the role of Jesus and changing the role of Sophia. So it it was very varied, but it all seemed to have, again, this sort of self, this therapy, which they thought was not just a personal therapy, but a cosmic therapy. The Gnostic talks, you know, if we can get our mind to work like the mind of the alien god, to get it 100%, then we can actually start not only helping the world, but help this alien god heal and help make contact with alien god. So they get pretty psychedelic. And as you mentioned, they do have this sort of sci-fi sensibility to them. I mean, that is one thing that can't be denied. And I always like to tell people when they read the Gnostic Gospels, just keep in mind the four hallmarks, but also keep in mind this. It was a writer, William T. Volman, who wrote in the New York Times, quote, As a corpus, the Gnostic scriptures are nearly incoherent like a crowd of sages, mystics, and madmen all speaking at once. But always they call upon us to know ourselves. And that's one of their central dictums, is that they felt, and again, they're taking the vibe off of the the Greeks, the Greek mystics, and the Romans, and so forth, that to know ourselves, to go inward, we could really find a divinity in it, through all the layers of falseness that we are, all the layers that the archons have created. Which appear as our personality defects, our engineering, our education, and even fate itself, we could find this divinity within ourselves. It's almost like the journey inside was the journey outside. So you had to take these two journeys in order to tie everything in. But of course, again, to do this, you had to get through a lot of archons, and ultimately, you had to get past the demiurge. And they would have these rituals where they have these, you see them in their texts these grand rituals with passwords as they're taking astral flights through the heavens and they would meet an archon and have to give him a password or trick this archon and they go to the next level and the next level and it really didn't it really didn't end until you hit the ultimate source which they often called a depth and silence it was this moment of pure contemplation where you were you might say in the moment in pure zen so needless to say i don't see any reptilians yet
1: (laughs) fair enough And so I I have really gotten interested in magic in recent years, which has made religious topics unavoidable because they're so intertwined, especially when you go back and get to the roots. And I hear Gnosticism come up alongside paganism and Kabbalah when you get into this lane. I hear them referenced a lot together. But how related are these schools of thought really as far as you can tell?
2: They're definitely very related. I mean, remember, they were the big melting pot in those days was Alexandria. Mm -hmm. So the Gnostics, we do have documented, uh, we, we have it documented that the Gnostics were rubbing shoulders and going to the same school as the Neoplatonists, that they were inside the Jewish communities, the Hellenized Jewish communities, that they were inside the churches and the church fathers are trying to do it. So there's a lot of overlap in what they thought. But even the neoplatonists hated the Gnostics because again the Gnostics were so radical, not only did they think that the gods were really demonic, but the Gnostics had these ideas back in you know two thousand years that if you had enough power, you could travel the planes and you could actually control the archons and control more of the super angels. Now they weren't controlling to overthrow the world or anything or gain material power. that was never their their goal their goal again was pure consciousness expansion, pure fullness and wholeness. But this used to just make the Neoplatonists angry because a lot of the Neoplatonists thought, no, you don't mess with the divine. The divine is fine. You can get solace and you can get advice and you can get peace, but you don't start materializing the fabric of the cosmos. You might say they were doing theology back then and they were doing a lot of magical rites. I mean, we do have instances where they're putting on animal masks and dancing around. There's instances where they were taking sort of this entheogenic wine and going into these altered states. And they were all over the place. I mean, one thing I was, I know I say astral fights, and I think I mentioned that they were sort of shamanistic. And I was today, there was an argument on Facebook, and somebody said, I'm a shaman, and somebody, you know, and somebody posted, "No, you're not, because that's appropriation, because the shamans were from Siberia." And of course, this <laughs> got into this big argument about appropriation when to call somebody a shaman and all that. And both sides were at it. I can only say this does work for Gnosticism because the Gnostics were called by a church father and by others, they were called sons of Pythagoras and it's uh, documented that pythagoras was deputized by a mongolian shaman he was taught this ancient art of going into the spirit world and taking astral flights and this art was handed down through the greek philosophers and to the Gnostics. So when I, I say, well, the Gnostics were shamans, I think I can actually make a good argument that they are and that they're not appropriating something. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but yeah, they were definitely rubbing shoulders. They were borrowing and they were they were heavily steeped in magic. We find some of their coins that they use with the Braxas and other magical coins that they had. We have these very long rituals and incantations of in their texts. We really haven't found out what they meant, but they definitely were doing, I mean, we don't know exactly the rituals are, but they were doing rituals and a lot of them are sort of using vowels and chants and calling on the name of, on these magical names, even on the name of Jesus to get things done. There's even some parts where they even have a snoring sound. They're they're doing this magical incantation. Then they're making these snoring sounds like... And it sounds weird, but as some scholars yeah. have said, they were going into a trance and falling asleep or halfway falling asleep was part of how to, you know, kick in that altered state of mind. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were definitely into magic.
1: Yeah, people you interview, they seem to agree a lot of the time that the practitioners themselves, because we mentioned they didn't really call themselves Gnostics. It seems like the scholars are saying that most of these people would consider themselves Christian And that seems just weird to me because the subject matter almost seems anti-Christian or like the 180 flip of Christianity. It seems weird that they do uh, use some of the same characters, even if they look at them differently, that they would consider themselves part of that faith.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, they were they were sort of absorbing what was around them and what worked. Yeah. And Christianity back then in the first century was a very radical religion. I mean, the, they were kind of shocking the pagans with their stories of drinking blood and doing all this sort of weirdness. And the Gnostics definitely took that. I mean, they saw they really saw like the Apostle Paul as an amazing guy because they had there was a story of him going and being blinded by the light and having to go to Arabia for all these years. And Paul is talking about traveling to the third heaven and making contact with angelic beings. So that's really inspired a lot of the Gnostics. They thought, wow, this is cool. And Jesus became, again, sort of one of their uh, exemplars, not so much to worship, but to kind of write fan fiction, to base their stories, to model their stories. And again, to sort of draw upon his powers. We have papyruses with the, somehow the name Jesus, which meant Yahweh or Yahweh saves. They thought that it had really had some magical powers that it could draw upon. But they weren't all just Christian. And in fact, you have the hermetics from the also at the time in Alexandria, who were their cousins, who were pagan Gnostics. And they drew from sort of the ancient Egyptian lore. You had a lot of the Gnostic texts are sort of non-Christian. They seem to draw upon Zoroastrianism. In fact, one text talks about this mysterious book, the Book of Zoroaster, that nobody knows, that nobody's heard, but they do mention it. They do go non-Christian in a lot of their texts, but they really found, again, they just found a lot of inspiration in that sort of early Christian vibe when it was so vibrant and it was so uh, elastic and it it was just interesting to them.
1: Man, the more I hear about that time window, the more the more I hear people talk about it, it just seems so wild that there's so many different groups in this pretty wide span of time that are getting into magic, that have their own rituals, their own practices. They seem to be like everywhere. And I think of Alexandria as just like this big breeding ground, this like farmer's market exchange of all these different... <laughs> magical ideas it yeah. seems like such a hard task for a group like the roman catholic church i guess to put that toothpaste back in the tube the way it has been done
2: yeah or just uh appropriate it yeah i'm, I'm using <laughs> that word because it drives me crazy but yeah no i think the church definitely appropriated a lot of the magic the, oh, the idea of the saints and all the rituals i mean It seems the mass itself is a a form of spiritual alchemy that goes back to the mystery religions, the idea of eating your God and so forth. I mean, the church wasn't stupid. They know good marketing when they saw it. They just simply had to appropriate it and get the marketing in there, make sure that the experience that everybody could have individually now just came through the church. That's how you got it. And of course, you know, get rid of all the competition. But uh, yeah, Alexandria was an amazing place. I mean, you had Buddhist monks that we have documented. Buddhist monks were visiting there. You had a, a whole bunch of ideas in the library. You had the Hermetics. You had the Jews. You had the Christian Gnostics. You had again, it was this huge hodgepodge of you might say magic, but even magic is kind of a strange term because what's the old saying? We practice religion, they practice magic. Hmm. And somebody else said, you know, religion is just magic for the masses. Magic is just religion for the individual. I mean, at its core, it's just trying to get an experience with something beyond yourself and grow as an individual. And, uh, of course, it was hard in Roman times because a lot of times magic was completely unlawful, except state-sponsored magic and some exceptions. But having said that, it was going under the table, and it was happening, and it was probably very intense in Alexandria. Hmm.
1: Yeah, man, I I like that little uh, phrase about magic being for the individual and religion for the masses, but I always kind of think about magic as uh, anti-authoritarian because religion has been used as a control mechanism and a very useful psychological tool for the elite. And magic seems to be like uh, kind of that hidden truth behind their hollow husk of a tradition <laughs> that they give for everyone else.
2: Yeah, you could say that. I mean, again, it it really depends on what was going on because, I mean, the Gnostics, as I said, they were intrinsically anarchists. I think Chris Knowles calls them history's first geeks. There were yeah. the guys always in the corner that didn't trust the authorities, that didn't trust the temple, they didn't trust the institutions, and they wanted to do their own thing and find their own thing, and they were going to create their little groups and play their D&D and uh, mystical states and so forth. So I would definitely say that with the Gnostics, but as far as the Roman Empire, it was really hard to practice magic unless, of course, you were in the good side of the emperor. You were somebody, you know, somebody of authority, somebody that can get away with it, because let's face it, even before the rise of the catholic church these temples needed to stay open somebody had to pay for the electricity right so they they needed the money they needed those shekels and denarii to fall into it so they needed to control the magic the last thing you need is people going off and having experiences with divine and calling upon rain without permission and all that good stuff so <laughs> it was even very controlled even the times before the catholic church came about
1: yeah man so To give people a little more insight, what can you tell us about this Simon Magus character? They call him the father of Gnosticism in some circles, I'm told.
2: Yes, yes, yes. He's definitely, uh, I would say, one of my patron saints. (laughs) Simon Magus appears in the Orthodox version. He appears in Acts of the Apostle. And it's a very interesting story because... This is where the Church Fathers sort of give it away, because one of the things the Church Fathers always said, and scholars say, is that Gnosticism didn't start till later, second century, maybe even later. Christianity first came out. But what you have in Acts of the Apostles is you've got the Apostle Philip, he's walking around, I think in Samaria, and he runs into Simon Magus, and he's doing all these magical things. He's just doing miracles and really cool stuff. And He just comes up to him and he says, wow, I like you. You know, I like the cut of your jig. You know, you're awesome. And he says, why don't you come meet my band, my band of brothers over here? And Philip takes Simon Magus there and he ends up pissing off Peter and ends up ostracized, according to Acts of the Apostles. Now, that's interesting, Greg, because wait a second. If the apostles are there and Simon Magus was already like a main magician, that makes Simon Magus a contemporary of Jesus. So they Mm. sort of give it away there. (laughs) And who was Simon Magus? Well, the church fathers called him, yes, not only the father of Gnosticism, but they called him the father of all heresies. They thought that all evil, he was the Pandora box of all evil that came out in their times in modern times. And he was very much despised by them. And we don't really know much about the story. There's a lot of tales that we see. According to the Simonians or his community and some other stories, he was, again, sort of the incarnation of the alien god that came down to Earth. Why did he come down to Earth? Well, remember, I talked about the myth of Sophia, the fallen wisdom of the alien god. In the Simonian myth, you have these rebellious angels, the archons, and they sort of steal her once they see her. And they bring her down to earth and they cast her in a material form. And she reincarnates through time as the way of the archons to hide her from the alien god. And she was once Helen of Troy and all these beautiful women. Then she becomes in this last incarnation, this woman called Helen of Tyre and Simon Magus comes and meets her, and together they sort of join and they become, again, truly powerful. And in their human forms, they're sort of wandering around, again, becoming Gnostic revealers, trying to awaken the rest of humanity, trying to get their divine spark away. So that's one of the tales of Simon Magus. There are other tales you have, and in most of these tales you have in the Pseudo-Clementines, you have these really amazing magical battles between simon peter and simon magus usually in these battles well of course because it's written by the orthodox simon magus loses but so there are a lot of stories going on and simon magus we don't have anything there is something called the great declaration that he wrote that's been reconstructed because some of the church fathers like Epiphanius kept track but we really don't know much about him when it comes down to it Again, we know he's sort of uh, the font of all heresy and everything, and he's sort of an overlooked, I think, an overlooked character because when you get into occult circles, they're always talking about, oh, well, there's Solomon, and there's this, and then they jump over to the Neoplatonists and the magicians there, and then we move through history, and we've got the Hermetics, the Hermetic Revival and the Renaissance and Giordano Bruno and John Dee, and most forget, I think, really how powerful and uh, how intriguing Simon Magus is, because not only was he this great magician, a very powerful magician, and who scared the hell out of the church, but he was also, as some have said, the first person to really stand up and say in a literary in the in literature to say, "No, the gods are false, all their institutions are false. Come my way, I got something better now Some have said that Simon Magus is really just a cipher for Paul because well, there's a lot of clues that show that's, that you see a lot of parallels between the Apostle Paul and Simon Magus, but not all scholars. So I say a minority of scholars really accept this or believe this, but he could easily be a cipher for uh, the Apostle Paul.
1: Hmm. I love it, man. Now, because there are so many, I'm, I'm curious, do you have a favorite sect or group that you find most interesting or unique? The Cathars, the Sethians?
2: Uh, would it have to be the Sethians? To me, I always call the Sethians, which I borrowed from a friend, I call them the punk rockers of the ancient time because they were really the—you might say—at least when you read their—they were really surly and existentialist and pretty hardcore. I mean, some of their scriptures are not just sci-fi, but they—they they border on pornographic and. Huh. They were the ones who basically made no excuses and made no compromises. Some of the other Gnostic sects, including the Hermetics and the Valentinians, sort of gave the Demiurge a pass. He's misunderstood. He'll he'll get there and so forth. But the Sethians, there was nothing about it. He was evil. This world was evil, and everything had to go, and we had to get the hell out of this earth. And they're the ones who really promoted the myth of Sophia, the myth of the Archons, and other things. So I really like the Sethians, and people always go, well, God, man, these guys are so negative and all that. But for me, I always thought that the Sethians and some of the other hardcore Gnostics, it's really the most positive message, because... As, you know, as somebody who's in recovery, I myself in recovery, I believe that it's only when you realize how bad things are, that's when you're actually going to start doing something about it. That's when you really get the joy in life. When I said, I am really at the bottom of a hole, and I need to stop digging, and I need to start looking up to a light, to any light, and that's when I can really start doing things, and that's when the true journey of joy starts, and I think that's what the Sethians were doing. They said look, this whole place is complete darkness, complete hell. It's a manufactured nightmare that we're living, this bad software. So we need to start looking for those little sparks of light. We need to look into the abyss until we find that little spark of light, those little cracks. And we need to start climbing out of here and start waking up other people. Because unfortunately, that's the life. I mean, sometimes... People get excited because they want to change the world or help others. But then, oh, my God, I got to get the new iPhone. or Oh, my God, there's something on TV. It's only when we know how bad things are that we'll actually roll up our sleeves. And for once, I'll do that. And I felt that the Sethians were that group. And they sort of inspire me whenever I feel again like, well, maybe I'll check my iPhone. Maybe things aren't so bad. Maybe I'll just make the best of it in this universe and nature is fine. It's like, no, no, you can't. You can't let the foot off the pedal because if you do, those dark guns will make you fall asleep. They will bury you in bureaucracy. They will find ways for you to become ignorant or part of the system because they don't sleep and they're going to get you at the end. I mean, that's how the game was. And that's why I really like the Sethians.
1: Fair enough. Cheers to that. And uh, not to put any specific people on blast, but what do you think about guys like David Icke or John Lash or Jay Widener? These guys who talk about archons and the prison planet concept in conspiracy shows and uh almost in some cases make it seem like there's some type of uh, conscious connection between the top of the human power pyramid and potentially some ethereal capstone i mean how do you feel about the way gnosticism is typically represented in conspiracy circles is there anything that you think needs correcting or smoothing out
2: i like i mean honestly i like their work i do like their again i like their thrust i like how they're taking like you said it starts with the humans and it goes into metaphysical realms probably beyond i think they get that right i like the again they have the same sense of paranoia that the gnostics were accused of because the gnostics they saw a conspiracy in every rock they saw a conspiracy in every institution they were just always sort of jumpy so i do like that vibe I do think they get a little literous at times, like David Ike. I don't think they're reptilians. Like I tell people, it's like you can't really settle upon an image because you're sort of limiting yourself. I know that's hard to explain, but there's a quote in the Gospel of Philip, which is a Valentinian 2nd century Gnostic quote. And it goes, truth did not come into the world naked, but it came in types and images. The world will not receive the truth in any other way. And to me, that's a very powerful passage because it also reminds me of Whitley Strieber and his work, like his last book with uh, Jeffrey Kripal, Supernatural and his other works, where he he goes around and he's saying, hey, I never said these were aliens. I'm saying this is an otherness. This is an other form of intelligence that's out there that is so so beyond us that we basically it's going to appear to us again how our culture and how our programming is, how these beings or this otherness is going to appear to us. And the Gnostics would certainly agree, image, you got to go beyond the image into these unknown truths. So it, to me, it always seems limited that you're going to stop at aliens or you're going to stop at lizards and all that. Like I always tell people, if you want simple answers, then you're going to live a simple life. If you want certain answers, you're going to live a certain life. But if you want to go, you know, to places where angel fears to tread, where your sanity is going to be challenged, where these images are going to shift, but you can get past them and expand your conscience like ever before, then that's what you got to do. But again, a lot of these guys, I think, again, they're limiting, but I do like their work. The issue I have with John Lash, I did like his book, Not in His Image, enjoyed his book a lot. But I, as others have told me, I'm not a scholar, but I have talked to Coptic scholars. I like to hang out with scholars so I can learn. I have a lot to learn. But they tell me that Lash does take a lot of liberties with his translations. He does his own translations. And a lot of things end up just not jiving that well. I mean, I don't think his benign view of the world, that's something that the Gnostics would have not accepted. They thought the world was suffering. And there was divinity in this world, but as a whole, the system was evil and meant to destroy you, or at least it had its own agendas. So I think Lash sort of, he I think he drops the ball in that way. But other than that, I like, again, I like their vibe. I like their thrust. I like their paranoia. And I like the fact that they keep the ball moving forward.
1: Fair enough. And it is interesting. Some people are saying that they think the whole alien motif is a kind of cover for spiritual entities that seems to be the more nuanced view in these circles than than it was like say in the 90s
2: yeah i would say so too i mean i i've had an extraterrestrial experience mm. but for, again i draw from uh, whitley streamer i don't try to settle and say this is from planet and these are the grays and these are the whites or anything like that All Right. i try to see what is going on inside me what's happening in my inner world And can this help me expand my consciousness? And I'll just wait around for the next time this other intelligence decides to download some information into my brain that will show up as images around me. But yeah, the alien, it's great. But again, it's not something we're going to figure out. (laughs) And so you might as well continue on this wonderful journey of adventure i mean isn't that what they always say that people who have alien abduction experiences become really good people they start helping others they start their lives are completely transformed and they're, they're not so much worried about being obsessed with finding the next alien encounter and so forth so i think that's that's the thrust i would have
1: yeah you know that is really interesting and it kind of touches on uh, another question that i had for you which is um Kind of a weird one, I guess. But what do you think about the idea? I've heard some people pushing that Jesus wasn't ever a physical guy, but just a channeled entity. Because, like you said, those messages do kind of parallel what weird paranormal experiencers of today seem to say. The message is.
2: No, I would certainly definitely would agree with that one. I mean, as people who listen to Aum Radio know, and from my writings, I fall more into the mythesis camp with. Echeria S. and Robert Price, Joe Atwell, and some of the others, which I think Jesus is more of a myth. And I don't mean like a myth with a small M, but a myth with a big M. A myth as in this, you might say, cosmic power, this great archetype. This sort of uh, yeah this great uh, spiritual energy that we can use in different ways and the Gnostics since they were writing so many different versions of Jesus again it was like their fan fiction it was he was like their Batman it's like in this story he's doing this that story he's doing that in this story he's teaching this it became sort of their, their inner projection of what they wanted to do so in that way I I don't see Jesus as a historical figure. It's not something I don't, it's not my dogma. I don't really think much about it. I just try to look at the stories and find inspiration from these stories as I do so many other characters. I mean, you might say, you know, Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird never existed, but that's a much more inspirational character than most religious figures you'll find, real or not. So that's where the inspiration happens, and I think that's where the true power is.
1: Hmm. Yeah, man, I do find it really interesting the way they seem to play with the characters of the biblical story. And there are some insightful lessons in texts like these. But like you mentioned, it's kind of similar to comic books or that kind of approach, that fan fiction approach. And, it, you know, from your perspective of someone who's spent so much time in this, it takes hours and hours and years and years to really digest these texts and become knowledgeable about these ancient sects. It's a hell of a rabbit hole. I mean, what value does it have to you? What do you think are the most important things you've gotten out of this epic study of really just these, I guess, forbidden Gospels in a way?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think as April DeConnick wrote, the Gnostic Gospels didn't become forbidden. They were forbidden from the very start. They were something so radical. And they're even radical today. I mean, for somebody to question the gods and the representatives and the whole state of nature, that's still pretty radical. Even in occult circles, that makes people really uncomfortable. It's like, oh, my God, you're messing with Gaia and nature is so wonderful. It's like, yeah, OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. But it was very radical. And to me, it was, again, that sort of amazing rebellion. It's like, you know, when I was younger... It, I went through my hippie stage, and sometimes I think, well, maybe Jan Irving and Jay Dyer are right. This was completely manufactured because the hippies, they just sold out and became lawyers and politicians and the people that are causing the trouble today. And I was the same way. I was younger, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to listen to Megadeth and Rage Against the Machine and Fight the Power. Man, it's, it's almost like as soon as I got out of college and got married, I just went into... Nine to five job, pay my bills, vote. All, it's like, what happened to me? How does that happen? It seems to happen. To every. Why, why is it so easy for people to sell out in this world? Why did I sell out? Why did my uncle and my aunt, the hippie, sell out so quickly? And everybody's miserable. When I discovered the Gnostics, I said, ah, this takes it even further. This is even more radical than all the radical teachings I had heard from the East from philosophers, from writers. This is the most radical thing in the world. We live in a false world. We don't belong in this world. We are being completely controlled by these higher entities that in a material way we have no chance of defeating, but in a way we are far superior to them. There is part of us that can wake up and become even more supreme than them and really help out those that are in need in them. So the Gnostics being so radical extremely radical, really helped me sort of get that thrust. And again, people say, well, it's so negative. But when you read their texts, beyond what I said about self-knowledge, there is an amazing joy that I'd never seen before. Because again, they had woken up and seen the truth of the world, and now they really wanted to do something about it. And they had taken the red pill, and there was no blue pill, and they were going to move forward and take it all the way. There was no getting there. Like I mentioned They would take these flights inside and outside to all these cosmic regions, to these levels. And like a video game, fight a bigger boss each time, a stronger boss. And they were just going to keep going until, well, until the game ended. And usually the game ended with them being destroyed, their physical part being destroyed. But as a narrative, I really find it amazingly heroic. I find it amazingly compassionate And I find it amazingly stimulating because they were such people of reason and they were people of kindness. They really did walk the walk. When you read stories of the Cathars or the Manichaeans or the classic Gnostics, they were always, despite their really heavy-handed message, their existentialist message, they were really beloved by their communities. They were embraced by people. People really liked them. The people that didn't like them were the religious and, secular powers around them eventually they had to go and i think the other thing that the gnostics really at least touched with me was i think their central tenet was beyond anything beyond anything they wanted in this world is that they wanted freedom they wanted complete and unadulterated freedom hmm. they thought like for example when you read the existentialists like sartre and those guys They always thought the whole purpose of being a human was to be free. But after that, there was no meaning to the universe. This was a dark universe, had no meaning. Being free was as good as you got, and that was a worthy fight. The Gnostics took it one step. They were sort of the positive existentialists that you find in Colin Wilson and some other thinkers. They believe, no, the ultimate state for a human is to be free and then to find meaning in this world because it's a busy universe with a lot of spiritual entities and a lot of amazing places to go. I'd like to quote Eric Davis. He's a Philip K. Dick scholar, and uh, in his book Nomad Codes, he has this great quote, which I always think exemplifies what the Gnostics have taught me, and it goes, quote, I'd like to suggest instead that the impulse to transcend the Neoplatonist ascent through the spheres, the Gnostics' sudden awakening, the desert monks' rejection of the land vital, is not simply a philosophical error of the mark of patriarchy, but is fired by an intensely lucid yearning of the highest of goals, liberation. And I think that's what the Gnostics wanted. Hmm. And what I want. (laughs) What I've always wanted. What we always want. We just want to be free. Of
1: course. (laughs) Yeah. And... You know, I'm sure a lot of credit needs to go to the Matrix, but Gnosticism seems to be just a really popular perspective today overall. And I mean, we did talk about that a little bit, but as we're kind of wrapping this thing up, why do you think that is that it's so appealing today as it was, I guess, uh, the beginning of recorded history?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, I did mention the allegory of the cave, but I think it's because, again, we do live in Gnostic times, and it's such an engaging narrative. I mean, humanity has tried everything, and this idea of going through different bosses and fighting your way up to an ultimate source, which, again, what's the Gnostic promise? Like I told you, complete and uh, unadulterated freedom at any cost, because we've realized there probably is no freedom in uh, normative, mainstream ways. So I think these ideas really uh, jive well. And of course, the Gnostics had this sort of alien or sci-fi sensibility because they're almost like they're, the Archons are almost like Lovecraftian foes. And they're talking about these giant or these, these vast cosmic landscape and universes of light. And so forth, the Jesus and other of their exemplars are sort of shape sifting and have superpowers. You have some stories where Jesus is moving the Zodiac and he's shifting into different creatures. He's almost like a superhero. Same with Sophia and Mary Magdalene. So this kind of narrative, which was ahead of its time and it seems to have caught up, really jives well with science fiction and fantasy, which are, are the great myths of our time. So it really works well, and again, like I said, these are Gnostic times. I mean, the Matrix is a great example, but some have said that the Wachowski siblings basically borrowed this from uh, either from Grant Morrison's *The Invisibles*, which I highly recommend. It's one of my favorite comic books or graphic novels, and he really goes full Gnosis. But you see a lot of the Matrix in there, and even before that, you've got Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick was very influenced by the Gnostics. In fact, in his exegesis which was published a few years ago he does. what does he say he says i am so into gnosticism i can't back out basically philip k Dick had taking that red pill and he was going to some he was into some high weirdness he ends up saying that in this sort of despair that i'm too far into gnosticism to back out he says at the end of the paragraph he says guess what simon magus lives and that's a very powerful statement. And, of course, Philip K. Dick, sort of paranoia, existentialist, speculative fiction has become very popular today in many ways. As uh, Michael Moorcock said, we do live in a Philip K. Dick world because it seems, as we were talking, Trump and Deep State and Pizzagate, all that, that could come out of a Philip K. Dick novel. He was writing that stuff almost as a prophecy, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it seems to be more... Relevant than ever. And again, going back to Simon Magus, and I should mention this. You've got when Jung published his Red Book a few years ago, which kind of coincided with Philip K. Dick's exegesis, these two posthumous works that were sort of the private notes of these two giants. In the Red Book, Jung has a traveler, a companion that takes him through all the different worlds. Again, that sort of Gnostic shamanistic voyage. And his name is Philemon, but there is a note at the end of the book where Jung admits that Philemon is really, yes, Simon Magus. So in a way, I think Simon Magus has returned. I think uh, we do live in very Gnostic times, and it does translate very well into stories. I was thinking of the flat Earth when I'm seeing all this flat theory, and I'm thinking of that movie Dark City. Have you ever seen it? It seems that's right out of it. The moon is fake, the stars are fake, and we're in sort of this dark, flat planet with these creatures playing with us all the time. (laughs)
1: boom, Gnostic times indeed Uh, Miguel Connor going deep for sure, Uh, let's give the listeners some resources, of course we have your work and your synthesis maybe give the people uh, a few of your favorite Gnostic scholars or teachers, and of course remind the people where they can find your show and get more of what you got going on
2: certainly, certainly go to my website, that's where it starts thegodabovegod.com and there you'll find all my resources. You'll find my very, various books, including my fiction books, social media, my articles. And, of course, you can subscribe to my podcast, AM by Gnostic Radio. And I have listing and resources all there to uh, start your own heretical journey if you so choose to take the red pill. As far as what's out there, I'd say if you want to really understand Gnosticism, I do like April DeConnick's new book, The Gnostic New Age although there's a lot of good works. Again, I would say read Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, read Philip K. Dick's Valis, watch The Matrix, watch The Truman Show, uh, Snowpiercer, the Lego movie. Yeah. Watch Westworld. There is a lot out there. I mean, uh, I think at the end of the day, the best thing you do is you need to start writing your story. You need to start. uh, What did Stefan Heller, he's a Gnostic theologian, but he's also a scholar. He says any serious artist is already half a Gnostic. I think as an artist, once you start digging into reality, once you start going in that journey inward and you start playing with reality through your art and your expression and your invention, you're going to start hitting some Gnostic notes sooner or later. The question is, how far do you want to take it? At the end of the day, it's simple. Do you want to be free or do you want to be where you are now? (laughs) A slave. What does Neo say? You are a slave (laughs) trapped in a prison that you cannot touch or taste or smell. A prison of your own mind.
1: Touche. Not much of a choice when you put it that way. (laughs) But awesome, man. I am really happy we got to do this. You're doing some great work. I do get those very icky feelings about orthodoxy and conventional religion, but Gnosticism seems to be that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, and I appreciate it more and more. Thanks again, man, and take care of yourself out there.
2: No, thank you, Greg. You're you're uh, doing great work, too, and I really appreciate it. Rock on.
1: Fucking A. Rock on, indeed. Thanks. All right, people. Were you not entertained? Miguel Connor, the true pope of gnostic podcasting so glad we were able to do this i feel like we really did get a crash course in gnostic scholarship and that's pretty cool right obviously no one can say they're an expert just from listening to this but maybe we do have a little higher level understanding than we did previously miguel is just a fun guy anyway so i am glad that i'm getting to know another good podcaster in the alternative space And his other Voices of Gnosticism book is definitely pretty good, too. I know when I had talked to Isaac Weishaupt in the Star Wars show, he had said that he was a Christian. And I made some comments about Gnostics and certain elements of magic and how it did seem to apply to a lot of people who considered themselves Christian. So rather than the perspective that magic is not something Christians should play with, it's actually a restoration of the very roots of your faith. Perhaps. What do I know? But people wrote me and they were like, what the fuck were you getting so high and mighty about Christians for? And honestly, (laughs) we had just recorded this show and it was fresh in my mind. And I was just saying. But I think some of the Gnostic ideas and attitudes that we talked about could probably apply to a lot of us. And it's cool just to know more about groups that were a problem for the authorities of the past. And we shouldn't let them fade into obscurity. We should know about those people, right? The kind of people you have to want to learn about, because they're not making a Netflix series or a Broadway musical about them anytime soon. Although that would be pretty sick. But my point is, it's cool to have episodes that I feel make us all a bit more educated on an alternative topic a little more deeply, even if it doesn't relate directly to how we're being fucked. Is that fair? <laughs> a good nonpartisan, anti-partisan even, episode for very polarizing times. Look to the Gnostics, people. <laughs> so if you like the first hour today, you know you'll learn a lot more in the second. Sign up for The Higher Side Chats Plus at the thehiresidechatsplus.com and get the second hour of all these here Higher Side Chats episodes. In this particular one, we talked about Gnostic influence on Crowley and Thelema, the occult belief systems of the elite and how better to describe them, the elite's use of magic, the witches' coven that put the binding spell on Trump. We almost made it through a whole episode without talking about Trump, but what fun is that really? We also talked about the history of manipulation and suppression of various Gnostic groups. And looking at the most remote cultures for a glimpse into the uncorrupted traditions. Talked about Buddhism and the Dalai Lama dilemma. Portals, overlooked characters and stories in Gnostic narratives. And of course, HBO's Gnostic tale that is Westworld. And in positive news, I can say I'm getting caught back up now. Several good shows in the can. Two more great episodes coming out before the end of the month, and I'll see you then. Do check out the t shirts at thehiresideclothing.com, or you can get there by clicking shop on the typical Higher Side Chats website. But there is a great lion headed snake archon control design that I think people would be really into if you liked this show. And all the designs at the Higher Side Clothing, of course, are as deep and rich. As Miguel's voice, if that were even possible. The guy's officially an adult man. I am working on it. And that's why I gotta get out of here. I will see you soon. Check out Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio if you want to dig deeper into my man Miguel's show. And keep your pimp hands strong, people. Your move, arconic overlords, mind parasites of the elite, and suppressors of the path of true Gnostic spiritual alchemy. Your fucking. Oh no,
3: you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything, the nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't the job seem silly, hello Should I play back recordings from some spy agency? Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful when it's all exposed—the vast conspiracy. There's such a difference between us and the den.